Okay, great. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Chris Weatherby. I'm the Senior Transportation Analyst and Shipping Analyst from City. Really pleased to be hosting the Tanker Panel um, virtually for Capital Link, and this is a very unique uh, set of circumstances that we're coming to you from. I think we have a couple of different continents, a few different countries represented today. It's going to be a good discussion. Uh, so with us, we really do have a, a very, very um, esteemed panel here. So with us, uh, joining us from Euronav is CEO Hugo Destoup. We also have the CEO of Frontline, Robert McLeod, the CEO of International Seaways, Lois Zabraki. We have the CEO of Ridgeberry Tankers, Robert Burke, CEO of Chacos Energy Navigation, Nick Chacos. And we have uh, the president and CEO of TK, Kenneth Fid. So, as you can tell, this is a CEO panel, so I think there's going to be some really interesting topics discussed today. You know, I think probably the first thing to do to kick off would be to talk a little bit about the current situation. Obviously, there's an elephant in the room, and the reason why we're all not in the room together, and that is the COVID-19 sort of health crisis, public health crisis that we're dealing with right now. So, maybe first off, if we wanted to kind of go around the panel and talk a little bit about um, what each individual company is seeing in terms of you know, impacts, how operations may be changing, if there are any operational changes as they stand today, you know, other than obviously taking you know, kind of greater care with washing hands and, and maintaining sort of security of the vessels while they're at sea in that port. Um, but maybe that's the best way to start. So Hugo, maybe I'll kick it over to you. What's Euronav doing from a preparedness perspective to be able to manage through this crisis? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Chris. So my name is Hugo de Stoop and I'm the CEO of Euronav. Um, COVID-19 is a very weird experience when you run a tanker uh, a company nowadays because uh, we must be the only one uh, sort of enjoying uh, our markets, whereas uh, it seems the rest of the world is melting down. Uh, but that's, uh, I mean, let's leave that aside for a moment. Um, I think that as far as the uh, operation is concerned, uh, it has been uh, extremely limited uh, impact so far. Uh, I think that for Euronav, uh, the biggest impact is that we're all working from home, but we're supported by great technology, uh, and that doesn't, doesn't seem to disturb the operation too much. And on board the ships, um, obviously those ships are, are confined for several months when they do their trips, uh, which as you can last up to three months or four months at a time. So, um, so far we, we didn't have any case on board the ships. And when they arrived to a port, um, we didn't see any delays until recently. It seems that uh, we are having uh, small delays at the moment. These could increase. Um, it's yet to be seen. Uh, the other aspect where um, we are not yet impacted but could be impacted in the future uh, is the vetting. Uh, as you know, in our industry, uh, we need to be vetted by our clients uh, through a, a very good system. Uh, which assess the quality uh, of the ships and also the quality on the crew on board the ships. And of course, for that, you need to welcome an inspector on board. Uh, as travels are uh, very difficult at the moment, uh, not all inspectors are available, and there are a lot of jurisdictions who will uh, forbid inspectors to uh, come on board. So at the moment, it's okay. Uh, all of our ships are still in the certificates. Uh, but uh, maybe in a month or two times, uh, we're going to face the first difficulties of having ships out of vettings. And uh, we hope that the OCIMF uh, will provide waivers for that because this is really out of our control. 
Lois, could I ask if you'd sort of chime in here too, is there anything that you've seen from an operational perspective that has been a unique challenge uh, related to COVID-19? No, absolutely. I, I would uh, add on to uh, what Hugo started out, you know, certainly all of our ships are sailing and I think that uh, the tanker industry and uh, all of shipping are filled with amazingly resilient uh, people, both ashore and at sea. Uh, for sure, uh, our seafarers, I'm very glad that we have worked really hard to uh, get down um, them to contract, meaning we had worked, one of our KPIs was trying to relieve everyone on time. And why is that very important now is that it's extremely difficult for uh, tanker owners to repatriate a crew and get a new crew. And, you know, that's something where our, our crews have been uh, very um, responsive and have agreed to continue all of their assignments. But in many of these countries, you know, you, you just cannot, uh, you know, repatriate your crew. And this is something I think, you know, has been covered in the press and, uh, you know, for a month or so, I think it's very manageable. You get beyond that and then it becomes increasingly challenging. So, uh, you know, our seafarers, as usual, are on the front lines of, uh, you know, of making everything happen. Got it. Now, that, that's very helpful. And then maybe, Robert Burke, if I could ask you to, to chime in here a little bit. Do you expect um, any potential impact as you try to get sort of crews who may be onshore kind of ready to go to get back onto vessels? Does that present any challenge as well as you start to kind of see this potentially play out for maybe an extended period of time? Unfortunately, there are some discussions of this going a little bit longer than maybe just Easter. So could you, could you maybe comment on that? Are there any yeah. challenges with the crew specifically? Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, first of all, I was wondering at the end of last year what we would talk about when the scrubber issue is resolved. But um, now the answer has presented itself, and we all know yeah. what's going on. We talked about. Um, I think, as Hugo said, you know, the vettings will take care of themselves. I mean, there'll be the, the vettings themselves will not prevent the ships from loading or discharging. That's an administrative issue and a regulatory issue that we can all get waivers for, and the OCMIF will, will, will work through. I think the crews are a different issue. It's the human element. Uh, there was an article of, in, in All Things of the New York Times yesterday. Uh, talking about crews and how they're on board for a long period of time and they're disappointed they can't get off. Um, and it's, it's a stress. I mean, in the best of times, oftentimes crews are held up uh, longer than they want to be just because of the logistics of, of moving the oil and the ships. Um, the issue I think that's faced is more than just simply um, getting the ships off the crew into a port. Uh, the next issue is how do you get the, the crews from that port to their home? And with a lot of international flights being canceled or restricted, you know, that's a secondary hurdle that's hard to get over. So I think that'll be the biggest issue that we face, in, you know, in the near future. A, a lot of these guys at the end of their tour, um, they're, they're all ready to go home. And, you know, an extra month or two or three when they were counting on being home is really difficult. On the other end of the spectrum, we have uh, crews that are ashore and um, they're not getting paid and they need to be paid. Uh, and this is a stress on the industry. So it's a financial issue. Um, it's also, again, a human issue. The guys on board want to get off and vice versa. So it's something that we have to work through. Got it. No, that, that makes sense. And then, Kenneth, if I could turn to you a little bit and, and maybe let's transition from that part of the conversation to, to maybe what sort of Hugo alluded to at the beginning. Um, as we've gone through this period, we've actually seen rates be um, you know, fairly robust. There's a lot behind that, and we'll have to try to unpack that over the course of this panel discussion. But could you give us a little bit of a sense of sort of what you're seeing today in the market from a tanker perspective, 
um, and, and maybe comment a little bit on some of the, the sort of, you know, push and pull dynamics of having a lot of potential supply of crude in the market facing at the same time the potentials for a significant drawdown in global demand. This is a topic I think I want everybody to, to talk on, but maybe, Kenneth, we could start with you and, and kind of go from there, please. Yeah, and uh, as background, as most of you know, uh, TK's main position is in the in the Aframax and, and the Suez Maxes. So I think there are some of my colleagues on the panel here who were probably a little bit more on the forefront in terms of some of the uh, contango storage play discussions that, that are clearly unfolding uh, as, as we're sitting here. Uh, but um, I think, first of all, we, um, we had our first surprise in, um, in October uh, last year with the, with the Costco sanctions, of course. And uh, I think none of us, uh, when we sat together in the middle of the year, uh, would have put uh, the numbers on Q4 uh, where, we, where we actually ended. Uh, and then we started guessing, well, is this going to last into, into Q1? Uh, are we going to see a repeat uh, of what we, we saw in 2019, where uh, January came off uh, pretty hard uh, and Q1 never happened? Uh, and as it turns out, uh, I, I think uh, right now most people will, uh, will probably come out uh, with a stronger Q1 than a, a Q4 in our space. Uh, so, so that's, of course, incredibly interesting. Uh, but again, uh, Q1 started to come off, and then um, I would say in the last week, two weeks, uh, clearly the market has picked up again. Then it came down a little bit again, and now everybody's watching how strong is this contango that we're building. And I think that's uh, that's really the tee up for the discussion. I think that is the that is the the, the big big question that we're all uh, gonna get a much better answer to over the next couple of weeks. Okay, that's helpful. And so maybe Robert McLeod, let me turn it over to you on the, from the frontline perspective. Um, can you talk a little bit about the current market? We can talk a little bit about Contango. We'll obviously want to go to uh, Hugo to talk a little bit about VLCCs as well. But, but Robert, can you give us some color as well? I certainly will. So I'm the CEO of, uh, of Frontline. And uh, Kenneth, thank you very much for teeing it up. Uh, I think uh, what we're seeing now is, um, I've been saying, over the, I've had a lot of calls uh, with investors and uh, so forth lately. And I've been saying that uh, it's once in a decade this situation happens. Uh, but I'm about to claim that it's once in a generation. What we're seeing in the oil markets and what we're seeing in the tank markets is unprecedented as far as I can see. Uh, we, we had obviously, we, we had the one million barrel OPEC cut. Uh, we all on this panel, <coughs> what actually happened was that we had a four million barrel per day increase which uh, is extraordinary in itself. But um, what happened then was with the uh, demand destruction. I think, think the, the market uh, part of the, the panel here should, should have full focus because what we're seeing is a complete demand destruction in the world on oil. We're probably down 15 million barrels per day. So my simple uh, numbers show that we are about 20 million barrels per day oversupplied in the world today. As everybody on the panel knows, and, and uh, all, uh, all viewers, is that uh, turning off production is not something you do instantly. It's not like a garden hose. It will be something that will, will be done over time. But I think that time is ahead of us. With the games that are being played in the oil markets, uh, Saudi did it in 14, and uh, they uh, carried on for 18 months. People thought they would carry on for, for a few months. It carried on for a lot longer, but I've got no idea how long it carries on now 
But uh, I would claim there is, it is likely that the world is currently oversupplied by 20 million barrels a day. And I would also claim that we are building inventories in the world five times faster or more than 2015. So what we're seeing now is, is incredible. And I also reckon all the traders and the oil companies, I don't think there's much more than 300 million barrels of oil storage capacity in the world. You, you see the numbers of 900, you see the, the numbers exceeding 1,000. That includes the SPRs in both China and the US. I don't think anyone on, on this panel, although we have a lot of ships, I don't think we will access the SPR of the US. So commercial land-based storage is, is probably 300 million barrels and it's dropping fast. So what's going to happen, and I think we're in the midst of it, we've talked about it for two weeks, and it's now really kicking off. Uh, the storage on ships is about to change this market and change 2020 completely. Personally, I've been completely wrong through January. I don't think I've got anything right at all. Uh, but uh, what I do think is that this year, with the way things are building up, it, there's going to be so much storage, it's going to be much more extreme in 2015. I've got no idea where the rates will be, uh, but, uh, but things are looking extremely interesting for, for tankers. Got it. That's very helpful. Nick, if I could ask you to chime in as well, what do you think about this storage opportunity? Yes, and uh, good, uh, good morning to all this is from our... Uh, headquarters in Athens. We're trying to finish the headquarters building in the background, but still working on it, as you can see. Uh, I hope all, all everyone is well. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting time. So I think we are one of the few industries uh, that uh, is uh, actually going through a very strong cycle, as everybody else uh, has sent. I said uh, we're, we're seeing uh, a lot of interest for uh, for storage, uh, Contango is there. Uh, a lot of interest for uh, storage, even on Aframax, is, is is starting uh, is starting to happen. I think what is also very uh, positive is the movement of, of of the clean market. I mean, in ten we run a fleet, a very diversified fleet, uh, seventy tankers, um, five. Uh, uh, vessels of uh, you know, shuttle tankers, uh, four uh, LNGs, and our, and, uh, our uh, tankers are uh, divided almost equally between products and, and crude carriers. So for us, it's important. The clean market is as important, and this is uh, one of the first times that we are seeing also Contango in the in the in the clean market with prices of of bunker and fuel oil at, at very very low levels. I think uh, right now uh, it has given. Uh, this very uh, unfortunate time is a very good uh, uh, introduction, uh, not the one that we chose for uh, for the 05 uh, for the low sulfur. I mean, the low sulfur prices have collapsed. Uh, I feel uh, that uh, uh, you know, with hindsight, uh, we were very right not to install any scrubbers on our ships other than the ones paid by by our charters. Uh, and I think um, we we are looking at uh, a very strong. Uh, first and, and second quarter, uh, but under the underline in this, and I know that we are seeing over over storing is that there is not a single talk by any of us for new buildings, and I think this will eventually lead to a healthier market. Uh, I think someone of, uh, said that we this is something that happens once every ten years. I agree. I think we are going 
when we get out of this uh, situation right now, uh, with the ups and downs in the next 18 months, we are going to be facing a much more balanced and healthier market. So, you know, we're not only here for today's uh, where the market is positive, we are looking for the whole industry longer term. And I think we are going to finally have uh, you know, a similar uh, cycle like the one we had from 2002 to, to 2008. And then finally, the ones who did not retire then can retire then. Thank you. That sounds good. Uh, thanks for those comments and thanks for the great background. Uh, it's nice to take a look at that. I haven't left my house in about uh, six days, so it's kind of nice to see that. Um, Hugo, maybe we could uh, touch on, um, maybe get a little bit specific around VLCCs if we could. So how many VLCCs are available for storage right now? Um, or, or what do you think that potential opportunity could look like? I think that uh, depending on the rate, uh, the entire fleet of VLCC is available uh, on storage. Uh, but uh, let's face it, I mean, the spot market is, uh, is uh, uh, around 100, 120,000. Uh, indeed, as you, uh, as someone said in its uh, introduction, we started the year uh, a little bit above that. Then we moved to uh, uh, very low territories and we had a strong uh, rebound thanks to uh, the Saudis. Um, so far, as uh, Robert said, um, the first destination for storage will be land storage. Uh, I think he's absolutely right when he says that uh, it's limited. Uh, we have approximately the same number uh, of uh, availability, which is uh, 300 million barrels. Uh, and whether that uh, is being filled at, at a rate of 10 or 20 million barrels a day uh, depends on uh, the real number, which uh, I guess it's, uh, it's very difficult to assess. Uh, but certainly with the restriction on travels, uh, cars not moving that much, planes obviously on the ground, uh, there, is a, there is a serious destruction of demand and therefore those uh, storage will be filled one way or another uh, very soon, i.e. Uh, in the next uh, 30 to 60 days. Um, in the meantime, there is, uh, we've seen the beginning of demand for storage on board vessels. It always starts with uh, all the ships. Uh, which is a good thing, but uh, we, uh, as much as uh, I suppose Frontline and NSW and others, uh, have been approached uh, to have uh, uh, contracts for uh, six to eight months, and the levels of the rate are anywhere between 70 uh, and uh, $85,000, $90,000 a day, uh, depending a little bit of uh, where uh, you want to store the oil, and of course, whether you attach a, a trading optionality to it uh, or not. So these are a very serious trade, and, and to a certain extent, um, it will be beneficial uh, for the people who do it, but more importantly, it will be beneficial for the people who have a large exposure to the spot market, because it will restrict uh, the supply of vessels. Um, as I mentioned, because uh, the first ships that are being taken for storage are usually the old ones, uh, the cherry on the cake is that when they are released from storage uh, um, work, uh, they usually face a dry dock, and at that point in time, if they are released, that's because the world uh, is in a different place. That's probably because the world is starting to consume uh, the oil that has been stored, which means that our rate may go down, but those ships will be eliminated. So not only do we have extremely limited order at the moment, and probably even fewer uh, in the future, for the next uh, six months or so, or maybe a year, but on top of that, we have a lot of old ships that will be good candidates to be scrapped if and when 
our rate starts to be weak. So uh, the future is very bright and people were scared about uh, the amount of oil that is being stored at the moment, at the moment uh, should uh, try to find comfort in the fact that when uh, it will hit our market, we will have enough remedy to restore a normal market as quickly as possible. Got it. That's helpful. Lois, if I could go to you and ask about asset values and how this opportunity relates to asset values. Mm -hmm. You know, historically, we'd like to see some of the time charter rates begin to sort of elevate and stay elevated. And that has a, a nice positive correlation relative to asset prices. So can you talk a little bit about that? Is there a period of time that you think you need to see storage kind of pick up for and maybe demand stay high in terms of supply coming into the market to keep get the time charter rates up, which ultimately then leads to vessel values increasing? So, you know, interestingly, uh, the older vessels right now, I think we'll probably see uh, healthier appreciation actually than the more modern ships, right? So right now, you know, in this storage type environment, you know, if you have a vessel that is, you know, 15 to 20 years old, uh, then, you know, you can secure a lucrative storage contract on that vessel. And I think those asset values will be quite resilient and possibly even inflate up a little bit more. And then on the, on the more modern side, I think that, you know, they, we will also see appreciation as this market matures into itself. Uh, on the new building front, I think that prices uh, will will not escalate very much because we're in such a deflationary world. Uh, but I do expect for asset values to at least be very steady. And then as the uh, contango hangs in there, and then that storage market, I mean, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that there are 28 VLCCs off Singapore, and that's a similar number to what there has been for probably six months, and you know, my question is, as I look at that every month, is to see, okay, is that now becoming part of the logistical chain? Half of them, at least, are part of the bunker, normal bunker operations, and then how many of those additional vessels will really become part and parcel <clears throat> of the logistical system? You have to assume that the NITC fleet of, you know, close to 30 Bs has to be fairly idle and used for storage at the moment, considering the uh, the very cheap prices that Saudi's pushing. So when you look at the storage situation, I think this incredible volatility is because you do have a lot of ships that are already, uh, you know, taken out of play. And so you have a higher level of utilization. And when the market starts to move, you see these, uh, you know, run-ups um, that it, it is true, I, you know, in, uh, in a long, many, many years, I don't think we've seen the type of volatility that we're seeing now. Yeah, no, that certainly feels that way. Um, Robert Burke, maybe if I could get you to, to, to chime in a little bit as well. How long do you think the, the sort of Saudi push from a, from a, a supply of crude standpoint lasts? So I, and it feels like we wanna, we're going to hand off from that to potential storage, but, but I, I don't know. How, how do we think about the timing of all of that? I think, like Robert said, um, any projections I had in January are completely wrong. I think that goes with the rest of the world. Um, I, I, I just sitting here thinking how odd it is that we're all benefiting from a, a demand destruction scenario. I mean, I, you know, I never would have thought that. And it's the extremes that really drive the equation. And, and what we have now is a real extreme. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. 
uh, I think we all sit here, look forward and uh, to some really great times ahead the next several months, year or two. Uh, and at the same time, we live in fear that Putin and, and <coughs> put their heads together and say, you know what, enough of this, let's get back to sanity. Um, the last time they tried to drive the U.S. shale people into capitulation, you know, they weren't successful. Um, I think this time around, the capital markets are tired of losing money in the energy sector in the U.S. Uh, the dynamic here is also different. I think the energy sector is weaker in the U.S. because um, the whole uh, uh, the, the energy sector used to be about 12 percent of the S&P. Now it's down to 4 percent or 3 percent. Uh, carbon is not a popular thing to invest in in the, in the Western world. So I think the, the search for capital, whether it's debt or equity or some other instrument in the U.S. shale market is going to be really difficult. And we're going to see some, um, you know, some real, real supply destruction in, in this part of the world. So my suspicion is that they, um, they will see the curve come down, the production come down in the U.S. and they'll continue to pump until, that, until those markets are closed down and they get some of the market share back. So um, uh, obviously, I don't know what anyone's thinking in other parts of the world, but I, I would guess it's going to be some time. Uh, on the other side of the coin, if it uh, destroys capital markets too much and, and forces the economies into some sort of recession, they're going to have to pull back. So all I can do is look out in the, in the short term you know, echo what Hugo said and, and Robert, and that you know the the amount of capacity to store oil ashore is quickly diminishing. Um, we've had requests, or at least um, inquiries, on storage on Suez's, which you know, it, which takes a is a different economic scenario than on the V's. The Contango curve continues to strengthen. Uh, you know, it's particularly strong in the next six months, twelve months. It flat doesn't flatten out a bit. It's just the the curve is not as steep. So all indications are that the traders think this will last for some amount of time. And in the meantime, you know, we're going to do the best we can to make hay while the sun is shining. Got it. Makes sense. Kenneth, um, how do you think all of this impacts smaller size vessels from a value perspective? Are you seeing any, um, you know, are there any cascading opportunities and, in, in, you know, as you were to sort of play this out over time, how should we think about sort of the dynamics for Afros and Suez's? Yeah, I, I think, I, as we as we all know, I mean, if you look at the at the long trend, I, I think the the correlation is is strong. Uh, but we also all know that you see some um, some uh, wacky fixtures from from time to time in, in the short term, uh, where where suddenly you can do a, an Aframax fixture at uh, more than uh, what a, a B is going for on the same day. Uh, so so of course that's that's interesting. Um, I think the biggest thing is that, that we're watching right now is, of course, whether we're going to see a, a repeat of, of 2009, 2010, where we saw 50, 60 VLCCs being picked up in, in very short time. And then as, as uh, the need for transport continues to kind of flow through the market, that's, that's obviously going to be interesting. I think the other uh, big part is that, that uh, I think none of us have the answer to, but, but uh, we're spending a lot of time debating is uh, as the world is oversupplied by say 10, 20, certainly next um, month, 10, 20 million barrels. Uh, what can you actually shut in? Uh, what is going to be shut in first? Uh, I think we all can see that shale is, uh, is the incremental barrel that, that will probably disappear first. Uh, and if we look at how trade flows have changed uh, in, in the last three years with uh, rising exports out of the U.S. Uh, to what extent do we see uh, that that reversing to what we we used to have uh, with with um, light crudes going in? Canada is shutting in oil sand production right now. 
so in, in that scenario, you could definitely see a lot more uh, short haul movement uh, coming on, which is, is obviously not a great ton mile story. But on the other hand, you see a lot of trading on some of the, the smaller medium sized uh, vessels that, that we think could uh, pick up where old uh, trade lanes uh, will uh, be restarted again. Okay, that, that makes sense. Uh, Nick, I wanted to turn the, the topic a little bit. You mentioned it before, and I wanted to talk a little bit about um, you know, scrubbers and understanding um, what the dynamic is around scrubbers these days. Obviously, the world has changed massively in the last couple of months, and we're now dealing with a scenario, um, you know, with fuel prices just plummeting and, and, and some of these spreads really compressing. So maybe if you could give us an update on, on any color you have in terms of, you know, vessels in dry dock ready to come out, um, what ultimately this decision is around scrubbers. Will we see another scrubber ever again? I, those are the kinds of things that I guess, you know, I'm getting asked from uh, by clients. So, so what's your take? Yeah, where, where is Paddy Rogers when you need him? I mean, this is the, <laughs> <laughs> I think Euronav should hire him as a spokesman for scrubbers now. Uh, yes, I mean, what we are seeing right now, and as I said, we have been, uh, we do long-term business. So, if a client needs uh, on a 10, 15, or a five-year contract, uh, they can put a scrubber. We had a client that had requested on two of our VLs uh, to be, uh, they had actually ordered at their expense uh, the scrubber material since last July, and they keep on postponing it. It was postponed in November. Uh, it was postponed again in February. Rightly so now, of course, you cannot really uh, find a shipyard uh, with adequate personnel because of the virus that is there to work, you know, to, 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 to do a good job. So it has been postponed further. So uh, when you see this in VLCCs, uh, you understand that in the smaller sizes, there's not really uh, much interest uh, on, uh, on the scrubber idea. But I do not think it has to do, you know, this would have happened anyway, regardless of the dramatic drop of the differential and the, and the price of oil. Uh, I think uh, now oil companies are pushed uh, to start producing more uh, 0.5. And, and as all of us around this table, uh, we have found out it, it is actually much, much simpler and economical for in many cases to even burn 0.1 uh, in some of our ships. Uh, again, the differential is very, very small. So. Uh, my opinion is, uh, you know, uh, scrubbers always look <laughs> as a bad idea from the beginning, and it's proven because of this, uh, uh, it, it is uh, proven. Got it. Robert, maybe can we get your perspective from the frontline side? How are you guys thinking about it? What do you think the future holds here? Well, in terms of scrubbers? Yes. Uh, scrubbers, very simply, uh, simply said, we've invested quite a lot. We had a payback that was uh, going at about $400,000 a day in, in December and January. We're down to 100000 now. Uh, we have uh, a factory that we own parts of. Uh, we're not getting many orders. We're not going to get many orders for the current event. That's, uh, that's evident. And, and uh, as things progress there, then we're going to But um, if, uh, given that I'm on, on such a good panel, would you allow me, please, to go back on a few other issues that are points that have been made uh, earlier. Absolutely, please do. I think, I think the current market is, is what should have the main focus on the panel. And uh, I think uh, one, um, one thing is certain. 
supply of ships is being strangled. Whether we have 10 million barrels extra or 20 million barrels extra, uh, that's uh, still, it's building at a pace that we have, we have not seen ever. And um, I mean, Kenneth had a very good point on the US exports. Uh, that will go down likely, but it's important then to also point out that um, uh, over 60% of 2020 has been, uh, from what I'm being told, uh, has been hedged. So, and it's not a tapulous turn off. That um, will take a bit of time. I also think that the Atlantic, if you look at Brazil in terms of exports, you look at Norway in terms of exports, it's huge. So that will compensate. And uh, Saudi, I've got absolutely no idea how long Saudi and Russia will carry on. Uh, but the fact is, if this volume is then taken away from the market, because we've moved into a demand destruction scenario, that doesn't actually matter. Yes, the, the market will think it's, it's very negative, but the demand destruction is creating something in this market that I think is, is virtually uh, un, unheard of. And I think Bob had a very good point as well. And it's very simple. People are continuing to pump. And for us as ship owners, or working for a ship owner like I do, then, uh, then it's, not about, it's not about the demand. For, the demand is, is obviously very important. All demand is important. The freight is driven by all production. We are at all-time high, and I think that is that is the central point. So yes, we're we're not paying down our scrubber investment uh, as quickly as uh, I thought I would. But I, again, I've got most wrong uh, for the last three four months, and uh, on the clean side, I've got it wrong for the last six months. But we, as frontline, have been very positive about the market going going forward, and, and now we we see we're getting it right, partly for the wrong reasons, but uh, we are getting it right, and I think. This year is uh, is looking to be incredibly strong. Got it. No, that's very helpful. I appreciate that. Um, and and it, I think it's important to stay, you know, on on the um, on the market because this is a very unique market. Uh, maybe Hugo, I can ask you to comment. You know, if you were to look at your crystal ball, and I'm sure yours is much clearer than all the rest of us on the panel. Um, but when you think about the sort of demand destruction that we're seeing over time, if you were to kind of layer this out, right, I, I know it's very difficult to look beyond just the next couple of weeks or next couple of months, but if you were to start thinking about 2021, how do you see this market shaping up? There's so many different pieces kind of moving here with lots of supply, very low demand, potential storage, order book is kind of stalled out here. How do we think about the setup for 21 to be so bold? Thank you very much for uh, believing that my crystal ball is clearer than the others. Uh, I have uh, high doubts on that. Uh, to, be, to be very uh, honest and transparent with you, uh, and probably more transparent than the crystal ball itself, um, I think that uh, it's very difficult to assess how the things are going to pan out. Uh, I'm 100% with Robert when he says that uh, the demand for tankers is uh, much more correlated to the production of oil than the consumption. Uh, having said that, we all know that when the oil is being stored somewhere, uh, then at some point it will be consumed and, and therefore the demand for transportation will be reduced along with uh, the production of oil and that will take time. So uh, we, we are very excited about 2020. Uh, of course, we have had a fantastic Q1. We're booking extraordinary rates for Q2. Uh, we don't see this stopping um, unless suddenly... Uh, there's a change of mood in, uh, in Saudi or in uh, Russia. And we don't believe that's, uh, that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, and as far as 2021 is concerned, um, it's to a certain extent in such a, a volatile market, uh, too far away to predict. Uh, 
But again, uh, certainly at Euronav, and I think that um, a group of people that are present in the panel uh, would have the same feeling, uh, we have very strong companies and those companies are going to get stronger and stronger because of uh, the money we are making at the moment. So I don't think that any of us will be afraid uh, when uh, the rates uh, start to move downwards from where they are today because that will present uh, other opportunities and probably other opportunities to uh, further consolidate the market. And there are many people here who have been doing that exercise very successfully and so to enjoy uh, the cyclicality of our market. It's a, it's a necessity because that will, uh, that will mean that the old tonnage goes to uh, the recycling yards uh, and we reduce the supply in just another way as uh, what we are seeing now. So quite frankly, I cannot tell you the rates are going to move up. Uh, but uh, frankly speaking, I'm very excited about what I'm seeing and I'm very excited about uh, uh, the next two or three years and not only this very special period we are living through. Got it. No, that's very helpful. We only have a few minutes left. And so maybe I want to go around the horn here a little bit and, and ask about what your plans are for uh, the fleet going forward. We have essentially one of the most esteemed panels here, uh, people who are some of the most important decision makers within the tanker space. So let's kind of do it. You know, Lois, if we could start with you. What are you thinking about the fleet? Will you ever order a new ship in the in the next twelve months? Maybe that's the question that I'd like to ask. It's going to be tempting at some point, given where the rates are. Do you stick into the secondhand market? But but how do you do it? Let's get quick answers from everybody. I'll start right. with you, Lois. Okay. So you know we do the down cycle. We specifically have targeted since our inception. We're heading into our fourth year. Uh, secondhand tonnage. We bought second uh, ten secondhand uh, vessels, you know, everything depends upon, um, you know, what the prospects are. It's not our intention to run out and order a new building, so I, I don't necessarily see that in the horizon. At some point in the maturation of our company, I could see that happening. And, you know, we, we want to just make sure we respect the cycle and where we are in, in that space. So we're constantly trying to upgrade the fleet, but that does not necessarily mean new building. Got it. Kenneth, can I hit you on this one? Yeah, I mean, we, um, I think we pretty much come into, came into the cycle with absolute maximum leverage uh, to the market. Uh, so we did say leasebacks in the summer to maintain as many ship days out there. We came in with 60 vessels and uh, now it's about making hay as it's been, uh, as, as the point has been made a number of times. So we have an average uh, age of our fleet of, of 11 years. We think in a market like this, this is the perfect, uh, perfect age. Coming in with uh, with high leverage, uh, the the return uh, on on that equity uh, is is pretty phenomenal, and uh, uh, one more quarter just makes a huge difference on the return there. Got it, uh, Robert Burke, Ridgeberry. What do you think? Um, I'm the only one in the panel who's not uh, running a public company, so our view is is uh, is less on average age of the fleet, more on cash flow. So I'm hoping as the folks on the panel order their new ships and need. They need some cash to come to us and we'll uh, we'll buy their ships that are over 10 years old and happily run them and with a little less financial leverage and a lot of operating leverage. That's our that's our MO and it's seemed to have worked well so far and um, have good relationships with everybody. So I'm sure we'll be talking as uh, as you are, renew your fleets. <laughs> Got it. Good to be opportunistic. Nick, uh, how about you? What's your perspective? 
Well, uh, I'm glad to hear uh, all the wise words coming out. And uh, please remember all these wise words going forward. I think uh, building new buildings today, uh, first of all, we have no idea technologically what SIPs to build. There are so many uh, well-maintained five or 10-year-old SIPs out there that, uh, that are for, uh, for sale. So I think uh, there is no way we will ever you know, build a vessel opportunistically, regardless of the, of the, of the cycle price. Uh, but we will be looking, uh, we might have to build uh, against long-term contracts. And, that, and this, after a long discussion with our charters, in what proportion we're going to be, to be using. So, you know, I, I, I agree that, um, that we are in for uh, two or three good years if we maintain this uh, uh, new building censorship uh, arrangement uh, for all, and it will be much, much better. Got it. Robert McLeod, Frontline's perspective on this? So I think if you look at the last three quarters, we've, uh, we've been very clear that we've had a good outlook on, on the spot. We think it's, it's been looking constructive and uh, that's also what it's turning out to be. Uh, we have now 24 VLCCs, 29 Suez Maxes and 24 Aframaxes, including our, uh, our new buildings. We are down to an average age uh, on the owned vessels at four years. And for me, it's uh, and for John, uh, being being the main owner and, and only of, of the only one in shipping that's uh, survived almost six decades without without going bankrupt. And I would I would claim that he's probably the greatest shipping man through history. He's got now frontline down with the best balance sheet we've ever had, and uh, with the earnings power, which is a break even across the fleet of nineteen thousand. With our positive outlook on the on the market, we've held back doing time charters. We're very low, uh, we're probably 95% spot exposed. We will now take the opportunity to, to lower. We do see risk in 21 with, uh, with ships coming off, uh, off storage. We also believe that a lot of the ships that, uh, as Hugo said, a lot of these ships that will, will come off storage might go for recycling, given that the number of ships over 15 years is three times the amount of ships on, on order. So. Uh, Overall, uh, new buildings is, is out for us. We're, we're not going to play that game. Uh, we might uh, buy vessels in the market, but for every $1,000 we make above 19, we make almost $23 million. So unless there's special opportunities out there, we will focus on, uh, on harvesting and, uh, and uh, on, on terms of the dividend, uh, people keep, uh, obviously, it's a main uh, question now, given the times, then people are, are, are cutting. Uh, we, again, frontline is uh, in a position where, with the best balance sheet, and, and I think that we will continue to pay as long as the market outlook is as strong as it is now. Got it. That's helpful. And I know the answer from Euronav already, so I don't even think I have to ask uh, Hugo there. But thanks, everybody, for joining us. We are out of time. This was a uh, great conversation. We really appreciate everybody joining. And I think it was a pretty unique and, and very special panel. So thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Thank you.